Our next, our next reading comes from the Gospel according to St. John. It's found, in the fifth, it's found in the 15th chapter, beginning at the first verse. There Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Indeed. Grace to you all in peace from God our Father and our Lord and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'd like you to experiment with me for a moment. Try this. Close your eyes and put your imagination to work. I'd like you to call some images to mind. For example, what does a person of faith look like in your mind's eye? What does that person look like? Is a faith-filled person someone who conveys a quiet confidence or a calm and untroubled spirit? Is that what you see? Or is your idea of the faith-filled person an active and always-in-motion kingdom worker, someone who's mostly some sort of holy blur of volunteerism? Is that what you see? And now change the picture. Just have a picture of faith, not the person, but what does faith look like in your mind's eye? Is it a set of convictions that could be cross-stitched and hung on a wall in your dining room? Or is faith understood best only when it's put into practice out on those nitty-gritty streets of the real world? What does faith look like for you? Okay, now do me another favor. Open your eyes, because I'll think you're sleeping otherwise. Could be a long day up here. In the Bible... Abraham is presented as the father of all faith. And his life was a a series of journeys, and each of those journeys involved a measure of trust. And so by faith, Abraham, at the beginning of, of his sojourn, packed up everything he owned and everyone who was with him, and he one day just set off on a long trip toward a a place that was unspecified and undescribed in a direction unknown. It had occurred that God said to Abraham, go. That's all he said was, go, I'll show you the way later. And Abraham got up and went. And when God said, I will show you the way you are going after you're on your way, Abraham didn't reply the way I imagine I might, or or maybe some of you would. He didn't say, well, if I'm going to go out there this way, could you at least give me a hint where I'm going? Just a, a glimpse Maybe give me a general direction? Would you maybe even, God, take out a map and and show me the region 
I'm heading to. No, Abraham didn't do any of those things. He just got up and he went. He had no map. He didn't know his final destination. And the things he left behind were dear and valuable to him. Things that he might never see again, including his father and all of his father's rich holdings. He said goodbye to them all. And he got up and he went. All that our faithful ancestor had when he hit the road was a wing and a prayer, as the song says. And later he was given a dream of starry skies and sandy seashores. He was given a dream of a new home country where sometime his ancestors would all live and possess that land and live in peace and harmony with God. He didn't know where that land was. It was just out there somewhere. And so he followed God's voice. These seemingly sketchy images all flowed to Abraham through the word of God, every bit of it. We hear that story, and that's just a brief account of it. It goes on for many chapters in Genesis. But we say, when we look at Abraham, that's faith. That's faith in action. That's faith being lived. Abraham's life was a continual leap of faith after leap of faith. And most of us believe that at some level that sooner or later, faith will involve a leap from us too, or at least a step, a step out into that which we don't know. Abraham's own journey of faith had its ups and downs to be certain, and it sure had its setbacks too. But his story climaxed with one final excursion into the unknown. It happened on one terrible day when God came to Abraham and told him to gather his son, his only son, the son he loved, Isaac, and to take him in a direction that he didn't yet know and sacrifice his son to put him to death on an altar of God. As I said, Abraham didn't know where he was going to go to do this, but he traveled yet that last long dusty road as directed by God another faithful journey. And then at the end of that journey, when Isaac was bound and laying on the altar, Abraham stood above him and raised that knife. You can imagine that knife shining in the morning sun there on the mount in Midian. What to do? Excuse me, Mount Moriah. He was ready to do God's will and to put that dagger into the chest of his son when all of a sudden a voice came from heaven saying something like now I know Abraham now I know stop and his journey of faith was complete Abraham had one more time in the most agonizing and suspense filled way taken a leap of faith well into the unknown he was proving his faith far beyond our ability to even imagine or certainly to comprehend. It's far beyond anything any of one of us would ever be asked to do or even consider. It gives rise to an argument that's been among people of the faith almost ever since Abraham. Frederick Beekner has written that faith should be seen as a verb, not a noun. Because faith is always about the sacred journey along life's uncertain pathways. 
Others disagree, and they point out that in the ancient Greek language of the New Testament, people are said to believe, or excuse me, are not said to believe in something. In the Greek, it's subtly different. It says they are to believe into something. And here again, the Bible gives us that hint of movement. The hint of taking the risk of stepping off of a New Mexico mesa and and stepping into thin air. To people who take risks like that, faith is much more than a creed. It's not like a creed at all. Because creeds are static and fixed and never changed. They're settled. Creeds make faith look like, to them, an overstuffed easy chair. Something that you settle into in your living room. And you find it an experience in cozy spiritual serenity. But real faith, some say, is about hitting the road. Hitting the road while trusting God to lead you along. Faith is active and moving. It's not static, nor is it statue-like. As I said, this is an old debate. On the other side of the active faith argument was a man you may have heard of. His name was Martin Luther. His world changed, and he changed the world he lived in after he read Paul's hope-filled letter to the Romans, which says that we are justified by faith alone. Faith is a gift given to us by God's grace. We do not have anything, we don't have to do anything other than to just receive faith, taught Luther. Along the course of his life, Luther discovered, oh, he knew it was there all along, but he read in some depth the letter we call James as part of the Bible. James, the writer of that book, was not one who wanted faith to be like an overstuffed easy chair. The ancient author said over and over that faith without works is dead faith. He wrote, if you have faith, you had better be out there living. You better be out there working, journeying, if you will, all along your life's path and doing so in very active ways. Luther didn't like James' writings at all, not even a little bit. Luther once said, it's recorded, James makes me so angry, I want to take Jimmy's work and throw it in the kitchen stove. And so the debate carried on. Luther wanted faith to be like a precious jewel hidden in our hearts. Others, like the writer of James, claim that the best image for faith is walking. Some say faith is a matter of head and heart. What you know and and what you do. Others say faith is a matter of hands and feet. It's It's what you do and where you go. John 15, which I always had the privilege of reading for you, I think settles the argument of which is right. It tells us on the one hand, faith is about remaining or abiding, depending on your translation of the Bible. It's about staying still and calm and in one place. It's about being rooted to Jesus. And at the same time, this same passage tells us that we are called to produce fruit to be active and vibrant and fertile. It claims both. The grapevine image in our gospel lesson today helps us to feel this passage's sense of tranquility. There is, of course, tremendous life in a vineyard, but there's not much movement there. 
is there? Vines grow. They produce fruit. They are very definitely alive. But you don't see the vines walking around the perimeter road of the vineyard. There's a settled quietness about the 15th chapter of John. In fact, the one word Jesus repeats over and over is abide or remain. And we found that in the first John passage that Anna read for us as well. And we get the sense that we, who are the faithful branches, are called to stay put. As images go, the vine and the branches that Jesus talks about are fairly easy to understand. Obviously, if any given branch is going to have grapes grow on it, it it has to be connected to the vine. That's easy. We know a disconnected branch cannot produce fruit for the same reason a, a computer isn't going to work if the electric cord is not plugged into the power outlet. You cannot simply lay a branch on top of a vine carelessly and, and unconnectedly and expect that vine to produce much fruit. Again, that would be like duct taping the electric cord to the wall somewhere near the outlet for your computer. This is one of those situations where close is very definitely not good enough. The idea of connection is obvious. So obvious that Jesus' words about branches trying to make a go of it on their own is, oh, it's outright silly. And Jesus here is intentionally using ridiculous words so that he can reveal the utter folly of anyone who tries to live life without an organic and living connection with him. With real vines, what flows between the vine and the branches is, as you know, sap. And so, in John 15, what is the spiritual equivalent of that sap that flows between we the branches and or we the branches and Jesus the vine? In John 15, there are two different Greek expressions for the word word. In verse 3, there is a word, and the term is singular, W-O-R-D. And it's that which Christ has implanted in his disciples. But then a little later in verse 7, there's a plural form of a different word used there. And that's when Jesus speaks more broadly about the many words, with an S on the end, that he has spoken to the world. But whether it is the one word of verse 3 or the many words of verse 7, both need to be inside of us. That is the deal. It seems that when we are a branch connected in a living way with Jesus the vine, what flows from vine to branch is that sap. It is the word of God. So that begs the question, It's clearly not exactly sap. So what is this word? Is there a difference between the one word uh, referred to in verse 3 and the many words mentioned in verse 7? Well, consider this. In the first chapter, John's gospel began by saying, Jesus himself is the word of God. He was the word of God who was with God in the beginning and through whom all things have been made. Jesus is the ultimate word of God. He's the one who bears within his very self the power of creation, both back then 
and now. But as God's word, Jesus is also the son who is his father all over again. Jesus is the perfect image of God the Father. He is the ultimate word of revelation to show us who God is and what God is like. So there is a singular aspect to the word of Jesus. All of the words Jesus spoke add up to just one word in the end. The Sermon on the Mount The parables, the I am sayings, as we have this morning, Jesus' warnings, as well as Jesus' encouragements, all of these things and each word of them are vital. They're life-giving to us. But weaving in and through the biblical record is a single golden thread. It's a singular and unique truth. It's a first and a last word from the one who is the word of God made flesh. And that word is this. It is grace. The one word of Jesus that must remain or abide in us is that word grace, that word of giftedness. It is the word of the Father that reveals to us once and for all that the heart of God and the very glory of God is his love for you. And for me, for those we don't see out there, he loves all whom he has made. Ray Raycroft tells a story he claims to be true, and it's, it tugs at my heart because it comes out of the deep south where I grew up. And he tells the story of two pastors who were on their way to Atlanta, Georgia, and they were going to go there for a large Christian men's gathering. One of these pastors had never been to the south before. So after staying uh, in a motel overnight, the two of them went to get rest- uh, went to a nearby restaurant for breakfast before going to their conference. When their meal was delivered, the pastor who had never been in the south saw this white mushy stuff on his plate. He didn't recognize it at all. And when the waitress came by, he asked her, well, "What is this stuff?" And she responded, "Grits." Of course. The pastor was just didn't know what to say. And, and so he said, ma'am, you know, I didn't order this stuff and I don't want it. And so I'm not going to pay for that. I'm just not. And the waitress replied, sir, down here, you don't order it and you don't pay for it. You just get it. How like that free serving of grits is the grace of God. You cannot demand it. You cannot buy it. You cannot claim to deserve it. You just get it. You get it whether you deserve it or not by the grace of God. When you add up everything Jesus ever said, the sum total of every syllable of every one of the words he uttered, what you get is the truth. And the truth is that this man Jesus was on earth for one reason. He's come to tell us that God loves us. He loves you. He loves you. He does not love our sin. He does not love our evil or our evil ways. And the cross, the cross is God's ginormous galactic no to anyone who would claim that God loves us just the way we are. He loves us in all our tawdry and sinful disarray. No, says God. 
God does not love our sinfulness because God cannot love sin. But he does love you and me and all of us. And if Jesus has a single word that needs to burn in our hearts and burn with an intensity that we can scarcely abide, then it is that word that flows from the gospel. It's grace. Grace is the way. You know that God loves you. You. Amen.